Welcome to this episode of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Larry Ostola, and today I have the pleasure to speak to Patrice Zutil, the editor of a new book entitled Statesmen, Strategists, and Diplomats, Canada's Prime Ministers and the Making of Foreign Policy, published earlier this year by UBC Press. Patrice is a professor of politics and public administration at Toronto Metropolitan University. The author of 10 books, some of his recent works include The Unexpected Louis Senarin, Politics and Policies for Modern Canada, and Prime Ministerial Power in Canada, Its Origins Under Macdonald, Laurier, and Borden. He served as president of the Champlain Society from 2010 to 2017, and some of you will no doubt remember that he was also a longtime host of this podcast. Patrice, many thanks for joining me today, and it's great to have a chance to speak to you. It's nice to be back, Larry. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. Uh, In the introduction to your book, Prime Minister Stephen Harper is quoted as saying, the thing that's probably struck me the most in terms of my previous expectations I don't even know what my expectations were, is not just how important foreign affairs or foreign relations is, but in fact that it's become almost everything. Is it fair to say that this is a reality that all of our prime ministers have had to confront, despite what their personal inclinations might have been? Absolutely. I think that uh, you cannot understand the power of the prime minister in this country. You cannot understand the importance of the prime minister, one of the sources of the prime minister's prestige and power, uh, without understanding the centrality of the prime minister in determining uh, Canada's foreign policy. The prime minister is the main actor. It's the most important actor. And it has been like that since the days of John A. Macdonald. So uh, Mr. Harper is reflecting on a reality that uh, has been with our prime ministers since the very beginning. So, okay, let's, let's build on that a little bit. In the book, you identify three ways in which prime ministers influence foreign policy, basically through structures, policy, and finally style. Why don't you walk us through those and tell us about them? The challenge for me, the challenge I threw to the many contributors to this volume is uh, how do we understand success? How do we understand whether a prime minister has been successful in his job? And I'm saying his because we only had one woman and uh, only for a few months. Um, But how do we measure success? Too often, it's a real challenge because it becomes a contest of anecdotes. And I love anecdotes as as a historian, as a political historian. I think anecdotes can be very revealing. And I love to trade anecdotes. I love storytelling. Um, But you can't really come to terms with the uh, value of a prime ministership in foreign policy until you go beyond beyond anecdote. So I, I propose... Uh, a system, uh, uh, an evaluation grid, if you will, that I've used with other uh, in other ones, other of my books um, and studies. I think that prime ministers can shape foreign policies in three ways. First, by affecting the structures. What do I mean by that? I'm talking about the mundane stuff of government. 
departments, the creation of departments, the fusion of departments, the separating of departments, the elimination of departments. I'm talking about budgets, growing a budget for a department, uh, limiting the budget for a department, or even uh, eroding the budget for a department. Those are all basic structural things. Are we building embassies? Are we closing embassies? Are we nominating uh, more public servants to certain jobs? Are we expanding the bureaucracy? And I think prime ministers have shaped both in expanding and in contracting the state. So those are structures. Policy, well, Policies are the, you know, the decisions that are made every day about continuing a certain practice or, or changing it somewhat or taking a completely different practice, changing the practice, overturning the practice, making a 180. That's policy. And then finally, diplomacy. Diplomacy is the way the prime minister, as the chief architect of foreign policy, the way that prime minister behaves internationally. Is this person comfortable with world leaders? Is this a person who is curious about foreign affairs, about Canada's place in the world? What is the experience of this prime minister uh, in dealing with the international environment? And we've had prime ministers that have been really great at structures, Average in in in, uh, in policy, uh, mediocre in in diplomacy. We've also had the reverse, where prime ministers were spectacular in uh, in their personal diplomacy. They made an impact. They made friends. They they lasted, uh, but were pretty pretty average, if not mediocre, uh, policy uh, players, in a sense that they didn't really move the needle uh, for Canada's place in the world. Uh, and or uh, would have made no impact on the structures. Uh, and when I say structures, I'm talking about, of course, you know, our, 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 our diplomatic structures, but also our military. So uh, that I encompass the military and all that. So a, a long explanation, Larry, to say that uh, I, I'm, I'm, I, I go to the, the, the many contributors to the book to think about how prime ministers have, have shaped their, their, um, their foreign policy. And I'm, I'm, making a pitch that this is a good model to use uh, to understand uh, whether a prime minister has made a, an impact or not. Okay, so it's uh, so it's really a systematic way uh, to think about the impact that a prime minister may have had on the foreign policy realm, and I'd like to I'd like to maybe focus on the policy realm uh, for just a moment. So you make a distinction between an approach based on realism and another based on idealism or internationalism. How would you define both of those? And based on the evaluation of the prime ministers in the book, which tendency do you think has been preponderant or which tendency has had pride of place in Canada over the years? This is, this is a central concern of mine. Um, it, is a, it is a theoretical construct. A, a realist is someone who, in foreign policy, tends to see international affairs as the confrontation of states. Uh, for a realist, the world out there is uh, a mean jungle and the, the state must protect itself. And so the, the government and the prime minister uh, must have as his prime objective or her prime objective in the future, uh, the defense of the state protecting it from outside influences. It's a, it's, a, it's a view of the world that is um, hostile. And so what really matters for a realist are the immediate, the immediate concerns for security, uh, for safety, 
for trade because you still need to earn money and you have to trade in order to earn money. So a realist in Canada is somebody who at one time would have been uh, a, a supporter of the British Empire to some degree, uh, but with the turn of the century would have been somebody who's more concerned with the American Empire, more concerned about furthering Canada's relations with the United States. A realist is somebody who likes bilateral uh, agreements. The opposite of that is an internationalist, and that's at the opposite end of the spectrum. An internationalist is somebody who really sees the world as a peace-loving, mostly peace-loving uh, environment where states can work together, but also with non-state actors, where in a perfect world, states are working together in broad alliances, uh, identifying objectives, uh, setting out uh, strategies together, and, and hopefully you know, measuring success along the same lines. Uh, that's at the other extreme. And of course, I, I don't see the world in black and white. Somewhere along the way, prime ministers are at the same time. Simultaneously, they are realists and internationalists. It's a question of where they fit on the spectrum. Are they more towards the realist? Are they more towards the internationalist side? And, you know, this is the kind of thing that can really liven up a debate. You know, was Lester Pearson a realist or was he an internationalist? Uh, was Johnny MacDonald a realist or was he uh, an internationalist? You can go through every prime minister that way. And at some point, inevitably, uh, and, you know, we, we all take our own our own perspectives on this, but one person could say, you know, I really see so-and-so um, as, as a much of a realist, or the evidence convinces me that this was a, more of an internationalist. Now, I've thrown in uh, a, an extra wrinkle into that, uh, that equation by associating Robert Borden. My own chapter on Robert Borden uh, talks about the rise of a conservative internationalism. We typically tend to associate internationalism with liberal internationalism. But there is a school of thought that, in fact, predates liberal internationalism uh, called conservative internationalism. And I think Robert Borden was uh, a proponent of that view. And that is really somebody who is an internationalist, somebody who does welcome international associations, multilateral initiatives, but at the same time likes to play close to home, uh, does not want to uh, let go of the priorities of uh, that a realist might have, namely security, namely uh, relationship with the United States. And I think Robert Borden made a migration from being sort of a woolly imperialist, which in and of itself is um, an idealism, uh, an internationalist kind of perspective, uh, migrating towards a realism at the end of the at the end of the First World War where he clearly sees that the United States is going to be, in fact, the most important partner in trade and in security uh, with Canada. And he uh, starts to put in place the mechanisms to create uh, a delegation to, uh, to, to Washington, D.C. It's a slow process. Everything in this is a slow process. But I think that Robert Borden uh, made the first steps, and I think that his policy was vindicated because it was followed by Mackenzie King. So I think Mackenzie King was very much a conservative, small-c conservative uh, internationalist, very cautious in his steps, very suspicious of international institutions, supportive, of course, but 
uh, very mindful and very fearful of uh, Canada being uh, dragged into international conflicts where Canada's interests would not be served. So you see in Borden, uh, as you see in Mackenzie King in the 1920s and 1930s, a cautious internationalism, but one that is firmly uh, dedicated to the idea that the better relations are going to have to be with the United States because that's where that's where the security is and that's where the money is. Well, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you raised Robert Borden because I wanted to ask you a specific question uh, about him and about his impact uh, in terms of foreign affairs. Uh, so, in the years after Confederation, mostly under Sir John A. Macdonald, there were you know ongoing efforts that were deployed to get increased foreign policy decision making authority from Great Britain. And the First World War really, uh, at least my reading is, seems to have marked a major turning point with Borden not only serving as a member of the Imperial War Cabinet, but also securing a separate seat for Canada at the League of Nations. Uh, To use a bit of a cliche, was this really a a colony-to-nation moment? It was certainly one of the most important turning points. Um, There is a a well-known vignette of of Borden really angry after the Vimy, uh, the Battle of Vimy in uh, the spring of 1917, uh, and telling the British Prime Minister, Lloyd George, um, this is never happening again, if this is never happening again. And so uh, basically declaring that Canada will take part in decisions with the within the British Empire, essentially staking out uh, his own voice, Canada's own voice in, in foreign affairs. Now, what he was doing was, I was, I was going to say he's, he is uh, affecting a 180, but not really. He's saying he still wants to be part of the British Empire. No prime minister would have denied that and survived politically. I mean, the, the Canadian opinion, the majority opinion, not the French Canadian opinion, the English Canadian opinion was firmly in the camp of Britain. And this demonstrated itself in the Second World War, where, when even though Canada had, had adopted all sorts of unilateral measures, Mackenzie King declared war uh, on, uh, on Hitler's Germany uh, in September of 1939. Uh, as, as an independent country, we did not declare war as, as part of Britain. We declared war as Canada. It's the only time we ever declared war on anybody else. And we did so independently. We did it separately. And yet, and yet, Larry, we were still part of the British Empire. We were going to fight along with the, with the British. We're going to support the British. We're going we're gonna to work with the United States to help funnel American aid to Britain. Uh, the, the notion that Canada was separate from Britain was basically set aside because of this phenomenal uh, war that was being announced. That is not to deny the fact that all through the 1920s, Canada continued to take steps to negotiate its own deals, to negotiate, to sign its own agreements, uh, to stake out its own place uh, in the League of Nations. It's a little. It's it's very much a step by step process, but what I, what I want to bring out though, and we have a marvelous chapter in, in this book uh, on Johnny McDonald uh, by Barbara Messamore, and uh, you know she talks about the 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 way Johnny McDonald imposed himself uh, with the British Empire, and that Canada's uh, point of view with the British Empire uh, was clear, and Canada 
enjoyed an enormous measure of independence. I go, I go further personally. I, I say that John A. MacDonald created the Atlantic Triangle, literally elbowing his way between the United States and Great Britain time and time again to make sure that Canada's, Canada's interests uh, were taken into consideration and mostly winning his fights. So uh, I think John A. MacDonald set out a, a very important pattern that has been followed uh, by prime ministers since the beginning. And yet at the same time, of course, each prime minister puts his own stamp, has put his own stamp on foreign policy, whether it was, in, as I said earlier, in adding structures or removing structures or in adapting policy in their own way or in using their own personal diplomacy to affect uh, either a change in policy uh, internationally or uh, to help Canada's image improve uh, in the international uh, community. So, Patrice, one of the interesting points that's that's made in the book is, is the idea that foreign policy decisions obviously can have a major impact on electoral fortunes. And you argue that at least half of Canada's national elections have featured a critical foreign policy dimension. And is it your sense that prime ministers are generally, you know, overtaken by events or or, or do they deliberately choose to campaign on a particular foreign policy plank? What's what's your sense of that? To be a good student of, of history, you have to recognize that because of its geography, uh, Canada Canada hardly ever uh, creates an international uh, incident or an international issue. Uh, we suffer. We have suffered as a, as a as a former colony of the of Britain, as a as a friend and ally of the United States, as a neighbor. Most importantly, as a neighbor of the United States. Uh, Canada has no choice but to react to the, this succession of extraordinary empires. Uh, we've had no choice. So really, it's a question of how the prime minister will choose to react, how the prime minister will um, negotiate between Britain, first of all, Britain and Canada, and then as the United States assumes a much more important role in Canadian affairs after the 1920s, uh, how to negotiate with the United States. And some prime ministers have been very good in recognizing the importance of the United States. Uh, some of them have been rather indifferent to the United States. I'm thinking of John Diefenbaker, for example, who really uh, was an old uh, sentimentalist regarding the British Empire, understood, I think, uh, the necessities of dealing with, with the United States, but was always very skeptical of the Americans and... Uh, you know, as as the uh, the the um, Cuban Missile Crisis demonstrated, and the whole issue of of uh, arming Canadian uh, missiles with nuclear warheads uh, demonstrated, uh, you know, he had to change his mind. He had to. Well, he didn't change his mind fully, uh, but the election that took place uh, in 1963. This was, what, uh, six months after the Cuban Missile Crisis of the fall of 1962. Um, Diefenbaker lost his majority, and he lost his majority for a whole variety of reasons, but not the least of it was the fact that he made a fool of himself uh, in the Cuban Missile Crisis in the eyes of many, not in the eyes of everyone, but enough to lose his majority. So, you know, you, you deal with the United States. So it's, uh, for me, it's a measure of realism. Um Time and again, prime ministers have neglected the United States or have tried to deal with it separately, differently. Um, but I think that it's a good measure of the realism of a prime minister, the degree to which they deal with the United States. 
So basically, I mean, I would conclude that it's a relationship that you really neglect or or try and avoid at your peril. It's sort of like, you know, uh, something that prime ministers have to deal with uh, as a priority. Well, they, they should. They should. And if they don't or if they do it clumsily, uh, they may pay a price. And again, that's evolved over time, hasn't it? Uh, the way Mackenzie King played in the United States uh, is different than the way Louis Saint Laurent played, uh, the way uh, Pierre Trudeau played the United States or, or Pearson played the United States. Uh, it's very different than Mr. Mulroney uh, or Mr. Trudeau, the younger, uh, Justin Trudeau today. Uh, or Mr. Harper. I mean, there is an evolution in thinking. There is an evolution, but each prime minister brings his own stamp to it. Uh, and I think that's what makes the story so interesting. Um, there, there's always a new wrinkle. And I, and I argue that that wrinkle is very often a product of the prime minister's personality. Well, speaking of that, let, let's, let's talk about the prime ministers a little bit more. And, and one thing that struck me as I went through the book, uh, was what I'm going to refer to as the pragmatic consistency of our prime ministers in terms of foreign policy. Uh, from my reading of it, there were no real mavericks uh, who tried to upend the system one way or another or, or make some dramatic departure uh, from past practices. Do you think that's fair? And do you think it can simply be chalked up to circumstances of history and geography and, and our status as a middle power? Or is there some other explanation? I think that in, in essence, you're right, Larry. Uh, and I think that this is uh, the perception of a lot of scholars, a lot of uh, people who look at Canadian foreign policy who tend to see it as as a, a steady evolution, as, uh, as a sort of a, a path that has been followed since the beginning. It's a path, but it's a path that has its various zigzags um, and I, those, those, those zigzags are what makes Canadian foreign policy interesting. Again, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I have to issue a call for modesty here. We are talking about Canadian foreign policy. Uh, some people will say, well, you know, it's actually a miracle that we actually have a, a foreign policy and can you prove it? Uh, other people will say, uh, you know, the fact is that prime ministers don't really play much of a role. Uh, that really, as you say, uh, the the circumstances of history and geography have already established much of Canada's foreign policy, uh, and therefore the uh, the role of prime ministers are really the uh, sort of the waves on the surface of the of, of a vast ocean. I, again, I, I challenge that. You're absolutely right to say that there is consensus, consistency. Consistency. I'm sorry, uh, but again. There are zigzags. There are curves. Uh, prime ministers have tried different ways of of negotiating with the United States, of supporting the United States in some cases, of not supporting the United States in other ways. We have a remarkably independent foreign policy. We certainly do not follow the United States uh, automatically on most issues. I th on anything that's important, uh, we don't follow the United States. Canada was at war in the First World War three years before the Americans, and the Second World War uh, also uh, full two years before the Americans. Um, we don't, you know, we followed the United States into Afghanistan. We did not follow the United States in Iraq. There has been, uh, over time, a particular Canadian perspective on the United States, and that again has been the product of of as much. Well, I'd say. I mean, the product of of uh, of the business community's views of the of the Canadian public's views on the United States, um, 
but also of the prime ministerial views on the United States. And that'll affect, that may affect style. You know, you think, for example, of um, Stephen Harper's perspective on, on, the, on the Obama administration or on, or even before that, uh, the George W. Bush administration. You can sense that Mr. Harper, and again, this is merely appearance, uh, but Mr. Harper wasn't very comfortable in that kind of environment. Uh, Mr. Trudeau, very much more comfortable with uh, President uh, Obama. You remember President Obama uh, was brought in to address Parliament. Uh, obviously, Mr. Trudeau, uh, fils, uh, Justin Trudeau, also a uh, great challenge with uh, the presidency of Donald Trump, the American administration, um, an enormous challenge that he had to face. And I think that in that regard, he did he did fairly well. Um, it does challenge a personality, and that personality is worth looking at. But again, in terms of diplomacy, does the personality really affect policy? Yes, in some cases. Uh, no, in other cases. Uh, you know, for example, uh, Mackenzie King was on the verge of signing a, a reciprocity agreement. I'm not going to call it a free trade agreement, but it's sort of a, an important trade agreement with the Truman administration in the, in the uh, late 40s uh, before resigning. And he decided not to. Why? Because he was afraid of appearing to be too close to the United States. He remembered that Wilfrid Laurier in 1911 had signed a reciprocity deal with the Americans, and it had cost him the end of his government, that the Canadian public could not forgive Wilfrid Laurier for signing a reciprocity deal in English Canada voted against him in 1911. And Mackenzie King, who lost his seat in 1911, remembered that 30 years later. So, you know, policy consistency should have dictated that Canada sign a reciprocity deal in 1948 as the Canadian economy was integrating with the American economy at a rapid clip. But Mackenzie King stopped. He did not do it. And only because of his own personal views, not because there was a broad consensus. Maybe he did the right thing. We don't know. But it certainly... Uh, it was his, that decision was made in his mind and, uh, that was it. So, so Patrice, there's a, there's another point, uh, in the book that I found particularly interesting. You point out that since 1968, only two ministers of foreign affairs have held their portfolio for more than two years, which really doesn't leave a lot of time or opportunity to gain experience and have an impact. And I wondered, as I was reading that, I said, is this simply a reflection of the desire of prime ministers to centralize control and sort of ham hamstring potential rivals? Or, or is there something else at work? What explains the almost revolving door nature of the position? You hit the nail on the head. I think that this is further confirmation of the, of the desire of prime ministers to dominate foreign policy. Uh, I mean, we're talking about 50 years here, 50 years of not having a rival in cabinet um, to determine foreign policy. The prime minister is fed uh, a daily diet of uh, intelligence, uh, is going to make the decisions on what is going to be priority in foreign affairs, is going to make a decision as to what gets started and what gets ended in terms of policy explorations. And uh, that power in Canada is total. I, you know, I, I mean, I, I call the, I call my introductory chapter the imperial prime minister because the prime minister in Canada plays the most important role in foreign policy. There is no, there is no second. The prime minister has even beefed up. I mean, we're talking 
again, we're talking about something that started under 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 McDonald to a certain degree, uh, but certainly accelerated through the years where a prime minister would have a personal advisor on foreign affairs. Uh, and that, that, that continued under, under Laurier to a certain degree with Joseph Pope, uh, with Robert Borden, with Loring Christie, who had Loring Christie as a personal advisor. Uh, Mackenzie King built up the bureaucracy, but they were all serving him. Uh, and it was only Mackenzie King who, in 1946, decided, okay, uh, I, you know, he was getting old. He was getting old at the time and starting to recognize that he was getting old and uh, finally allowed for uh, Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs uh, to, be, um, to be occupied by another, another person. And he chose, of course, Louis Saint Laurent in 1946 to become the first uh, non-prime ministerial um, individual uh, to to head that department. There had been a couple of people in 1911, but their, their, their tenure was insignificant. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the prime minister's role, uh, is, is, is key. There's very little evidence of a foreign, uh, of a foreign minister, uh, playing a key role with the one exception that I do want to bring out. And that is the, uh, the fine chapter, uh, by Matthew Hayday, who, uh, decided to, to, uh, look at the, the the uh, Brian Mulroney and Joe Clark administrations together, and uh, Hayday's perspective is that both Mulroney and uh, Clark had a had a had a a perfect coincidence of ideas. They were both of the same gen, roughly the same generation. They had a certain idea of what I would argue is conservative internationalism, and the ideas that Clark uh, put into effect in nineteen. Uh, 79 were very much the ideas that Mulroney put into practice after 1984. And of course, he had chosen uh, Joe Clark as his minister of external relations, and that lasted for, what, five, six, five, six years. Um, and by far, Joe Clark is one of the longest lasting uh, ministers of external relations and, and turned out to be a very, very good one. There was a, a remarkable entente between uh, Mulroney and Clark about uh, where the prime minister's role uh, began and ended, and where the Minister of External Relations uh, role began and ended. Well, and he's, he's he's almost the exception that proves the rule because they had been leadership rivals as well. I think you're right, Larry. I think you're you're absolutely right. It it, it stands out. It stands out, and and I, I see that. I really do see that as as a, an expression of uh, conservative internationalism. Okay, so let let's get to a little bit of the fun part of the book. Yes, because uh, you, you can you can really play with this. Oh, okay, so so at the end of the book, there's a ranking, and I'm not going to give away what the ranking is, but it's a ranking of the most and least effective prime ministers from a foreign policy standpoint. Okay, so the last word goes to you, Patrice. Based on your knowledge and your evaluation of our prime ministers. Who is it that gets the top marks for having the greatest impact from a foreign policy perspective? I'm putting you on the spot. Well, that's fine, and I, I appreciate it. What what I did here, Larry, was um, was I asked I asked the the uh, the collaborators to uh, to express themselves on this. You know, we've all seen these uh, wonderful uh, rankings of Canadian prime ministers. Uh, they're a lot of fun, and 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 I, I, I triple underscore the word fun. Um, it's always very difficult to. To, to measure the differences between a prime minister who served in the 19th century and you know a prime minister that served in in war it's very difficult to 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 
to compare things like that. But I asked, I asked um, the contributors to this book, the, all the, the wonderful people who uh, who kindly gave their time and their 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 energy and their genius to writing their chapters, and who are all experts in Canadian foreign policy. I asked them a series of questions. Who do you think was the best prime minister in terms of structures? Who's the best prime minister in terms or the most effective prime minister in terms of, of shaping foreign policy? Who was the most effective in terms of personal diplomacy? And I don't mind telling you that the person that won and won by a nose was Louis Saint-Laurent. Louis Saint-Laurent, who was the prime minister from 1948 until 1957, who affected structures, who affected policy, and whose personal diplomacy is something that we've forgotten today. But the man was extremely effective um, with Britain, with the United States, in France. Louis Saint Laurent. I have a wonderful. I have. Uh, I had. A, I had a wonderful chapter in the, the book I edited on Louis Saint Laurent uh, a few years ago uh, by uh, Greg Donaghy, who'd written about uh, Saint Laurent's international tour of 1954. Uh, this was the first time a Canadian prime minister uh, circled the globe, went to Europe, went to India, addressed the Indian Parliament, uh, went to Japan. This is a remarkable thing. Uh, of course, uh, you know, had attended uh, the uh, the uh, crowning of Elizabeth II. Um, Saint was a very effective diplomat. He was also a wartime prime minister. He boosted uh, the Canadian military immensely in order for Canada to uh, participate in the Korean War. He was a cold warrior. At the same time, Louis Saint is the guy who starts international assistance. Uh, he's a person who sponsors Lester Pearson's proposal of a United Nations uh, military force to bring peace. Uh, he was, I, I kind of think of Louis Saint Laurent as a warrior monk. And my, the contributors felt the same way, followed very, very closely by Mackenzie King. Mackenzie King, in particular, the Mackenzie King that fought the Second World War, and who participated in the shaping of the United Nations. Uh, the Mackenzie King of the 1920s and 1930s doesn't really get a whole bunch, a whole bunch of, uh, of credit, but certainly the Mackenzie King of the, of the Second World War uh, and, and post-war, Cold War, uh, gets a high mention. After that, you have different kinds of winners uh, in different categories, and uh, you also have a bunch of losers at the, in the categories, and uh, you may not be surprised. Then your, their listeners may not be surprised that the people who rank the lowest, uh, with the with the except with, with aside from from the uh, my mentioning of John Diefenbaker earlier, uh, John Diefenbaker to this day is is seen as being particularly bad in uh, in negotiating uh, Canada's foreign policy. Are the most recent prime ministers, uh, both um, Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau, get very low marks? Uh, among our co- the collaborators, and uh, because uh, maybe it's because we still don't have enough perspective on their work. Maybe it's because um, we do understand what they've done with Canada's foreign policy. There is a sense out there that Canada has lost its voice, that Canada has lost its place in the international community, uh, and that is felt uh, again in the the fifteen odd people that have contributed to this book. So it, it, it's. I think it's it's a great game. I emphasize it's a game. 
but at the same time, it can be really instructive. It can really uh, discipline the thought. What is it that makes some prime ministers better than others? And I think that if you're interested in, in Canadian prime ministers, you cannot avoid a discussion of foreign policy and um, you know make sure that you that 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 aspect of their tenure has been properly understood. Well, Patrice, I think that is a perfect note uh, upon which to end our chat. And uh, so I'd like to thank you very much for having taken the time to join me today. It's a pleasure, Larry. Thank you very much for having me. My guest today was Petrus Zutil. His book, Statesmen, Strategists and Diplomats, Canada's Prime Ministers and the Making of Foreign Policy, was published earlier this year by UBC Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. You can also send us an email at info at champlainsociety.ca. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Larry Ostola. This interview was recorded on October 31st, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press journal team, who also support the Champlain Society.